You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 139. What's up, Mark? It's our first Friday Q&A, Jake. And you know what that means. You guys write in, we answer your questions, and hopefully provide you with tons of value. You want to jump right into it? Yeah, before we jump in, though, folks, if you like the show, do us a favor. Leave us a review on iTunes. It takes 30 seconds. It is the best way to support the show. So real quick, just leave us a review. Let's jump into the first question, Jake. Cool. First question is from Alex Stanislavski. He writes, guys, great show. As a longtime listener, I have three questions for you. So let's break this down. I'll just break down into the first one, and then we'll, we'll tackle the other ones. Uh, when you look at the geological map of the U.S., there are five major basins. As a native of Illinois, the Illinois Basin, or New Albany Shale at one point, was the second producing field in the 80s. So any reasons that there's little to no activity in this field with the latest horizontal extraction methods and price of crude going back up? Yeah, so good question. So that that field, the New Albany Shale, was was hot and heavy. In, it was before the 80s. I mean, that thing was hot and heavy in the 70s, I believe. And it's 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 a it's a combination of different shales, right? And it's in between layers of of different uh, type of rocks, basically sandstone and dolomite. So and there's and there's a lot of organic carbon in the ground there. The problem is getting out the ground economically. You can get it out the ground economically now, but that break-even point in that field is probably right around $70, $60, $70 a barrel, which is actually cheaper in some of the other basins to get it out. So, you know, Alex, the, the answer to your question is the hydrocarbons are there. We can recover them, but it's a simple economic reason that, that, that there's not a lot of activity there. As we go forward in time, I would suspect that that field will be one that some of the big independents will look really hard at because it's a place where they can make a major play that nobody else is playing yet and, and, and pick up some prime acreage. They just need to be able to get the recovery price back down a little bit, which they will. So I think that we'll end up being back there somewhere in the future, just not today in 2018. What, what do you think is the main reason for the, you say the recovery cost is so high in that field? Is it lack of infrastructure? Lack of infrastructure is exactly okay. what it is. And okay. and since the infrastructure has been built in all the other major basins, for the most part, you know, it just doesn't make financial sense right now for somebody to go in there and do it. But I promise you, you know, as these other basins get developed and as the prime acreage is gone and people are having to look at subprime acreage, they'll start looking at other basins, including the New Albany Shale. Because like I said, the hydrocarbons are there and, and they're they're proven. They know they're there. Okay. So that actually answered his second question, which was, can the state of Illinois generate revenue by attracting producers with incentive like taxes because they're, they sure aren't getting out of debt selling cheap bonds? Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know so, if a tax incentive would be big enough to offset that. Yeah. And, there, and the other thing is there's a ton of gas there, right? There's around 20 trillion, with a T, cubic feet of gas there. So when, when you look at us starting with these uh, LNG plants, starting to export gas, you're seeing the price of natural gas go up in the last four months. And it's going to continue to go up over the next couple of years. It's never going to get really high, but the prices could be where the, the producers actually can make money. Then, of course, it's going to make economic sense somewhere down the road to go back and re revisit uh, the state of Illinois and look at getting that gas out of the ground and putting it on the market. So it's going to happen. It just give it some time. Cool. Next question is from Roman Demchenko. Uh, that's better than I could have done. <laughs> He's with uh, PetroHub. This is a really long question. 
Is yeah, let's not go through all of it. Let's just talk about what they're doing real quick. Just read the first couple sentences. Okay. He writes, uh, hey, Mark and Jake, my name's Roman. First of all, I'd like to thank you for all the work you're doing on the podcast. I'm a longtime listener of yours, and it's my favorite oil and gas-related podcast by far. I uh, discovered you by iTunes about a year ago and been listening since then. Currently working for developing a company called PetroHub based in Stavanger, Norway. Our company is a new generation B2B digital platform dedicated to buyers and sellers in the global energy industry. Our primary goal is to digitize quite conservative and slow oil and gas procurement on the, on the procurement and marketing sides. Uh, we do this by means of an online platform that puts industry suppliers in one place, provides them with multiple channels to represent their abilities and showcase their products and services to industry buyers. We also provide the possibility for buyers to submit RFQ or RFPs as sometimes they're called. Let's, let's stop there. So, okay. so, because we're get, I'm gonna get back in the rest of his question later. So anyway, he's basically reaching out to us, seeing if we can help market what they're doing. And a couple of things. So Roman, this what you are doing with PetroHub.com, and, and we'll give you a link in the show notes so people can go check out what you're doing. This is not the first time I've seen this. I've seen this several times, and I've seen this actually to the point where somebody was doing some really cool analytics, sort of like what Amazon does. So. When you go to buy a pump, when you go to buy, you know, if, if like I buy a lot of video and audio gear on Amazon. Well, when I go to buy a microphone on Amazon, Amazon will do some analytics and go, hey, maybe you need this pop filter. Maybe you need this microphone stand, right? I've seen that actually done in oil and gas. I've seen it where there was this online marketplace. And when you went to buy a pump, it'd say, hey, maybe you need a bolt kit. You know, maybe you need a seal kit with this. I think there's a lot of future need for that sort of analytics in the, the procurement cycle, because what's happening is all the senior people, you know, the guy that's been buying pumps and sent them offshore for 20 years, he knew to send a bolt kit with it, but he's gone now. And, and so this new person that's coming in may not know that. So I think there's a need for that. But the thing you're going to run into, Roman, is the fact that you're actually coming in and trying to change the industry. And, and Jake can probably talk to this as much, if not more than me, mm -hmm. uh, by bringing in technology. And we're just not quite there yet. And unfortunately, I've seen several of these companies that came in that had a great service, a great tool where they basically match suppliers and buyers. And I've seen them stand up and work really hard and then ultimately fail because this industry isn't ready to do that yet. We will be somewhere in the future. And whether PetroHub has timed it right or not, I don't know. But it makes sense. I just, you're, you're fighting a culture. You're fighting the a change. This industry hates change. It likes the way it's always bought stuff before, and it knows that they need to drive efficiencies. And is this the right time for, for PetroHub for your product to come in and do it? I don't know. Like I said, I've seen in the past several really strong tech companies come in and do this almost exact same thing, and, and ultimately they end up failing. So I 100% agree with you, Mark. You know, it's We've seen multiple companies in the, it come into this space. There's definitely a some sort of need, but it seems like regardless of how successful each one of these startups is in this space, they seem to kind of just fizzle out. And I think it is due to a lack of industry adoption. Either that or you know, we've seen companies pivot like RigUp, for example, was essentially a transactional platform. A little bit different, more so on the service side rather than actual procurement of, um, say, parts. More so working with service providers for EMP, say if you need to work over something like that. And they made a major pivot. So now they're more in the, I guess, kind of like almost like staffing space. So they're helping find talent uh, in oil and gas. And that was after them raising like 20 million something dollars. And so obviously, you know, there was some reason for them to pivot there. And we've seen other companies in the past, over the past 20 years, try to create, you know, kind of like the Amazon for oil and gas. And, and time and time again, it, it just doesn't really get the buy-in that it needs. And I think in part, 
I think the business models were kind of built upon the assumption that all oil and gas operators operate the way the super majors do. And if you're building a product specifically for super majors, uh, you're not going to have a business very long because for one, they're extremely hard to work with. The sales cycles are too long and they're going to squeeze you on price. And so the way that these guys work is completely different than the majority of oil and gas companies out there. Most oil and gas companies do not have a procurement department. They do not have procurement processes. You know, it is Joe Schmo, the engineer, uh, picks up a book and orders whatever he needs. You know, there's there's not really too much sophistication to it. Um, so if you're if you're building an entire product that is relying on RFQs or RFPs, I think that it's not really going to go as far as you as you would like. And that's not to dog the the vision. I think the vision is great, and I think there's obviously a need in this space. I just don't know what that actually looks like, just because. We haven't seen any success whatsoever in this space. And I think it is, it is definitely cultural as well. Yeah. And so let me get to the, the second part of his question. So as we are mainly catering European market, we're wondering if we would be, if you would be interested in a partnership of some sort, we could, as you say, in the end of every podcast, pay it forward and start sharing your podcast on our platform to help you increase your presence toward European listeners. So Roman, I'm actually, I believe I shot you an email um, around this, but we already have a huge presence in Europe. We, every place in the world there's oil, we have listeners. And and, and everybody out there, I mean, we're, we're pushing 400,000 uh, listeners in 172 different countries. So so we're in a good place. So we, we appreciate the offer of the partnership. We don't need it. We're doing well. But, uh, you know, if, if, like I said, we'll give you a link in the show notes back to your your company. And then the other thing is um, uh, reach out to me. We have a new tech podcast, which I guess I just spilt the beans. It's coming out pretty soon in oil and gas. And, and maybe, you know, that would be a better place to talk about what y'all are doing out there. Cause I would love to engage in dialogue. Like I said, I know there's a need for what y'all do. I just haven't seen any company successfully pull it off yet. Yeah. Not to dog the idea or dog you love the hustle, love the ambition. We're just kind of giving our analysis of what we've seen so far. So keep pushing forward. And if you have any questions, yep. feel free to reach out. Up next, we got a question from James. He is a roll line pipe salesman at Consolidated Pipe and Supply. He writes, Mark, I'm new to the industry and I'm trying to find my niche and how to be the guy companies go to when needing pipe valves and fittings. I've done most of my networking through LinkedIn, which has been pretty effective. Do you have any suggestions on how to reach more people and make a strong connection? So first thing, James, we'll put a link to, to Patrick Pister's company, <laughs> leanoffield.com. Reach out to Patrick. He's a guy you need to talk to, right? So he's a marketing guy that has worked offshore, that has done HS&E, that has drilled. So he knows the industry. He's really the guy you need to be talked to. Jake and I probably could spend three hours telling you how you should do this outside of LinkedIn, <laughs> but I'll try to make it really quick. LinkedIn's an okay platform, right? Since Microsoft has bought them, they've actually improved it. I would not say it's the best to use your time or your money, quite honestly. I think you're better off uh, setting yourself up and your company up as the thought leader in that space. And, you know, pipes and valves can be seen as a commodity because they are. But if you're the expert, if you literally are the guy or the company that companies can come to when they have a special need, when they don't know what's the best valve to use, right, all of a sudden you're not a commodity anymore. You're, you are the thought leader in that space. And you do that by putting out good, valuable, useful content on a regular basis. So you need to start a blog, you need to stand up a, a probably a WordPress site, and you need to start talking about valves and pipes. And you need to do it in a way that's useful. So give away stuff for free. Give away how do you size the right valve. It's the best way to make sure that you have the uh, you know the right valves in, in stock in your warehouse. What do you have to do with pipe? What's the things you need to know about pipe? What's the difference between steel that comes from China and steel that comes from the US? All that sort of stuff is super valuable. 
So, and then I would just get away from building your marketing presence on another person's platform. You know, if you're, if you're paying attention to Facebook in the last 10 years or so, a lot of people made a lot of money on Facebook and then Facebook changed the rules and all of a sudden they went out of business. And it's the same way with any platform that you don't own. So, you know, for instance, Jake and I own, you know, all in gas this week, we have a blog. It's where the podcast is published. If LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat changes the rules, Jake and I don't care. We own the platform. It's ours. So that's that would be where I would tell you to go. And like I said, the, the best thing you can do, James, is reach out to Patrick Pister. Just get on the phone with him. Let him talk you through this. Yep. I have 100% agree. I don't really have anything else to add to that. You know, just become the uh, become the thought leader in that space. And it's going to bring you inbound leads instead of being reliant on you constantly reaching out to people on LinkedIn and to your network. And it's going to make your, make your job a lot easier. Yeah, and James, something really crazy. Maybe you should start a pipe podcast on pipe valves and fittings. I'm not kidding. Reach out to me if you want to start a podcast. Maybe we'll start one on OGGN where you can actually use the power of podcasts to build your expertise, build your company's expertise. I, I think that would be, I think that would actually be kind of a cool podcast. Yep. All right. Up next, uh, I've got a question from Ben. He's the CEO over at Relevant Solutions. 2018 predictions uh, cited a 1,700% increase in online supply chain searches. What is the source of that statistic? A good friend sent me your podcast, and it's great. Thanks. We just made that up, Ben. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. So Modal Point, which is now my speaking platform, but for years was my market research company. So Jake spoke earlier about pivoting. Uh, Mark LaCour pivoted just recently with his company. But we've done market research in oil and gas forever, and we've done some work internally. We've done some survey work internally that we use for our own use. Part of that is that we actually use Google keyword analytics to look at a list of 50 pretty common supply chain parts and pieces in oil and gas to look at what the frequency of the searches are. And we track that every year. And like I said, we don't sell that information. It's for own internal use. But that actually came out when Jake and I, where do we speak, Jake, and we talked about this? That was in um, Calgary. In, Geo Convention? Uh, Geo Convention, right. So we, we pulled that data, which we normally use internally, and we made it public during uh, Jake and I went and spoke at a, at a conference. So that's where that came from. And then the reason it made it into the 2018 predictions is that the jump in supply chain searches has been unbelievably huge. Now, remember, that 1,700% looks huge, but if somebody five years ago searched for one-inch ball valves one time, and then in 2017, it got searched for 1,700 times. That's your 1,700% increase. So be real careful. That 1,700% that increase is legit. It's a real number. But what actually, the reason it looks so enormous is that it actually it almost didn't exist just a few years ago. Almost nobody in oil and gas searched for anything online as far as supply chain. And now that's changing. So hopefully that answers your question, Ben. All right, up next is a, I guess it's an anonymous question. He writes, Mark, how do you suggest I proceed to find a job in oil and gas near San Antonio? Is there a way to contact recruiters that can assess the best fit? I'm going to listen to the old podcast you did early on. Thanks for the help. All right. So this is right in, in our sweet spot. I get this question a lot. So going back to me talking about how you shouldn't build your marketing platform on somebody else's territory like LinkedIn, but LinkedIn is great for doing this sort of thing. I wouldn't really worry about recruiters. The the thing, and nothing against recruiters. I got a lot of friends of mine out there, recruiters. The thing about recruiters is that they end up getting hot position. So, so, so they go after whatever's easiest because that's what the same thing you and I would do, right, Jake? You, you go after what fit is easiest you make the most money at. And so it doesn't always mean that, that you fit in their sweet spot. What I would do is, is 
go look in LinkedIn. You can actually search by geographic area. So you could search by San Antonio. He doesn't say what type of job he's looking for. I'm, 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 let's, I'm just make it up. Let's say he's looking for a sales gig in oil and gas. And it doesn't matter what you're looking for. The process is the same. Go to LinkedIn, search for geographic area, do San Antonio, and then look for who's hiring, right? Because there'll be jobs posted on LinkedIn. Don't apply for any of those. Just look and see who's hiring. That way you've built a list of companies that are in the San Antonio area that you know are hiring salespeople. Then go back to LinkedIn, follow people that are in those companies that are probably either the the direct manager that would hire you or somebody in that group. So in the sales case, look for VPs of sales for those companies, connect with them, right? Give them something of value out of the gate, right? So do a little bit of research online and, and see where, you know, sales are going in San Antonio for oil and gas. Any sales manager that works for a company would be interested in that. And then start a dialogue with them on LinkedIn. And what will happen is relatively soon, they'll ask you what's going on. And you say, Hey, I'm looking for a sales job in San Antonio. Well, now you've kind of stepped around the system because especially if it's a big oil and gas gas company, no person actually sees your resume in the beginning. When you submit your resume or your job app online, it's software that reads it. And and that's a hard thing to get around, but you can skip that by finding the people that are in either the person's actually doing the hiring or it's somewhere related to the, the group in that company that's hiring. Once you find that relationship, you, you probably will still have to go back and, and submit your information online, but now you have a personal connection. I've given that advice to hundreds of people over the years, and it works almost every single time. So find the people in the geographic area whose companies are hiring and start a relationship with them. And LinkedIn's a great tool for that. Being someone who's like currently hiring by the way, here's a little shameless plug. So if you are a React and Node.js developer and you have oil and gas experience, please reach out. I, I look at people who, like someone with my last company, for example, there was a, there was a point in time where we, we, I didn't really have any open positions or anything. We weren't really planning on hiring, but I had a guy reach out and he was just like, I love what you guys are doing. He was like, I love, you know, I love the vision of the company. I, I love where you're at. And so he applied. And then I, you know, I kind of just brushed the email off and I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. And he was like, yeah, I didn't really consider it. And then he showed up at our office and somebody was like, Hey, Jake, there's somebody here for you. And I was like, oh, who, who would it be? And it turns out it was him. And he was just like, yeah, you know, I, I just really love what you guys are doing. And I just wanted like, you know, five minutes of your time just to talk with you and see if there's a fit. I ended up hiring him. Obviously, he had the skill set that we were looking for, even though we weren't really looking. It was somebody that was going to bring a lot of value to our team. And so I think if you could find something, if there's a company out there that you know you want to be a part of, even if they're not hiring, if you could probably go out of your way to try to find who that hiring manager is and say, you know, hey, I love your company. I love what you guys stand for. I love what you do. And, and you know, I'd love to be a part of your organization. I think that means a lot more than just you know, filling out a random application, especially with all the, with the application technology these days. I mean, you have to have all the hot keywords. You have to meet all these requirements and stuff. And I think it's kind of just convoluted and it's, it's a pain in the ass. So I guess it kind of depends on if you're passionate about what you do or if you're more so just looking for, you know, to get paid. So, and if you, if you are passionate, I would say go in that route, but if not, then, you know, you can go the traditional route. Yeah. I really like that, Jake, because nobody does that anymore. Right. And so you stand out and, and quite honestly, because, you know, we hire and I want somebody that come works for me that's a go-getter. And I think everybody wants that. And, and there's no better way to show you're a go-getter than do just what you exactly said. So I think that's great advice. Yep. And that's what I, that's what I look for in people. So, all right, up next, uh, we have a question from John Freeman, petroleum engineer at Total. He writes, with all the advances in technology, what do you think the future holds for engineers in oil and gas? Freaking love the show, by the way. Thanks, John. We love the show too. So the future, I think that you can see two 
you can see a divergent route for engineers. And when I say engineers, I mean all engineers, reciprocal, rotating, structural, petroleum, blah, blah, blah. So I think as humankind's knowledge base grows, which is growing exponentially every day, literally probably every hour, there's could be a huge increase in a need for engineering, right? Now, where's that engineering gonna come from? Unfortunately, part of it is gonna come from machines because it come from software. You know, the machines are really good. You know, I don't think I've said this on the show before, but I think the future of geology is threatened by artificial intelligence. The machine has gotten really good at reading what that, where that bit is, looking at measurement while drilling in real time, comparing it to stuff that has been taught by geologists and geophysicists, but it does it a thousand times a second, looking at a million data streams a day. It never gets tired. It doesn't perform differently because it got in a fight with its wife, blah, blah, blah. So I think some engineering is going to disappear because of machines. Right. But we need more engineering to meet the future challenges. I mean, look at what SpaceX is doing. Right. How many, you know, astrological engineers do we have? How many asteroid engineers? How many building, you know, human facilities on other planets? That's all stuff that's coming. Right. And it's coming. It's going to come much quicker than everybody thinks. But the thing about engineers is that they need to learn different job skills than they had to learn in the past. So, and I make fun of engineers. I love our engineers. You know, they're the backbone of the oil and gas industry. I'm, I'm making fun of you because I love you. But engineers don't always have things like good communication skills <laughs> or the ability to work in teams or an entrepreneurial spirit. And I think for future engineers, if you have those, the communication skills, the ability to work in teams, you know, a, a knowledge of, of what's going on in the world, looking at things as an entrepreneur, I think you're, you will never not be worried about having a job. But at the same time, I think there's some branches of engineering and oil and gas, especially that will disappear because of machines. And it's not a bad thing because, like I said, we'll have, you know, new types of engineering. You know, I mean, Jake, you and I have had talked about this on the show before because we talk about technology so much. But, you know, it was not that long ago where there was no engineers needed to build drones for Exxon or BP. Well, now there's a need for that. Right. And that that new type of engineering drive and, and the, the need for more engineering in the oil and gas industry, I think it's just going to grow in the future. So I, I think the future is bright for engineers. Just as always, no matter what your profession is, keep your head up, learn as much as you can, be aware of what's going on and be ready, ready to zig or zag if the industry's changing a little bit. Yeah, I, I 100% agree with all of that. And the only thing that I would add to that would be just to, you know, kind of build your skill set. You know, we see a lot of people in the space, they, they go out and get the uh, Sigma 6 black belt, whatever, and they get like project management search and stuff like that. And I think the biggest thing that's going to help you stand out as an engineer is to become a data scientist. And that's something that you can do with, you know, either a few semesters or different courses you can do, you know, online courses you can take. Because most of these organizations are transitioning from uh, data collection organizations to more of a data analysis. So they're looking at data and, and figuring out ways to take action on that. And so if you understand actual data science, I think it's, it's going to significantly set you apart and help you do your job a lot better. Yep. Good advice. Cool. Last question is from Michelle Jones. She is a venture investor at one of the big ones. That's what she wrote. So. Okay. Wait, wait, wait. Let me, let me stop you right there. I'm not going to make a dirty joke here, but Michelle, think about stuff that you write. <laughs> you fill out the forms. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> All right. So she writes, what do you think is going to happen with the intersection of oil and gas venture capital groups and oil and gas industry as a whole? Also, I'm not getting political. What do you see happening with women in our industry? And then one last thing, we want to know who can bench press more, Mark or Jake? <laughs> Let's answer the bench press question. I haven't maxed out in forever. Uh, years ago, I was at 340 max. I'm probably now about 315. I probably could just barely do three plates. What about you, Jake? Yeah, right at 315. Okay. It's, not something, so, it's not something I do very often. 
yeah, I, I, Michelle, I don't do it either because I'm too worried about hurting myself. <laughs> but <laughs> but hopefully that answers your question. It's so funny we got that question. All right, let's go back. You want to you want to do the women thing next? Let's do the women thing. So what do you think happened with women in our industry? Let, let me tell you something, Michelle, and I think this is so cool. So one of our other podcasts, Oil and Gas Industry Leaders, Paige Wilson is the host of that show. Her sponsor for that show, which is the largest manufacturer of flame-resistant clothing in the world, which is has recently won two RFPs because about 40% of the oil and gas companies that were issuing RFPs, their field staff were women. And when you're wearing FR clothing, that FR clothing has to be cut to fit your body right. And women's bodies obviously are shaped differently than men's. So that tells you a whole story. It's not 40% of the people in the office were women. It's 40%. It was actually 39%, if you want to know the exact number, in the field. That's awesome. 60% of all the new engineers being hired in oil and gas here in Europe are also female. When Jake and I go speak, at least half of that room, if not more than half, are female. So I, th- I think this industry has gotten over any and when I say this industry, I know globally that's not true, but here in Europe and in the rest of the world, we're getting there. I think we've gotten away from gender completely. And it's like, you're, you're a good employee. I don't care what your sex is, right? So I think women have a bright future here. And I actually personally believe here in the U.S. that in my lifetime, men will be a minority in the oil and gas industry, which is just weird to even hear come out of my mouth. But I'm looking at the numbers and I'm seeing it change. And, and, I, and I think that's where it's going to go. So I think that's what's going to happen with is women in our industry. You got any comments on that, Jake? No, I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Especially it's funny because today's Women's Appreciation Day. So it's kind of fitting that we actually answer that on then. On oh, is it really? Yeah. Yeah. Same oh, that's awesome. What are the media. odds of that happen? So I guess I'll answer the, so the first question was, what do you think is going to happen with the intersection of oil and gas venture capital groups and oil and gas industry as a whole? That's kind of broad. So I'm not really sure what the question is, but I'll kind of give you an overview of the market where I see it kind of being deeply involved in this space. So from a tech perspective, oil and gas tech is pretty hot right now. The Denver Energy Tech Showcase that I went to back in October was definitely proof of that. There was like 40 presenting startups. Uh, We didn't really present. We just had booths. And it was at a brewery there in Denver. Uh, It was packed with like over 400 attendees that represented different VC groups, operators, service companies, uh, et cetera. And then they're planning on doing another one of those events here in May. And then I'm helping organize one of those here in Houston. And so there's definitely a need. And you can definitely tell that just like the... There's a lot of hype around around oil and gas tech, but I think it's just the beginning for what's to come for the industry, which is going to be great for for deal flow for these VCs. So I guess my advice to founders in this space would be to look at your options when it comes to funding. The landscape of funding has changed dramatically over the past couple of years. You still have the traditional options of taking money from angel investors and venture capital groups, but now you also have newer options, you know, such as regulation crowdfunding and then ICOs, so initial coin offerings. Regulation crowdfunding is great because it allows you to accept money from accredited and non-accredited investors, and you're legally allowed to solicit your deal. It all goes through the SEC, and this is very founder-friendly because you as a founder get to set your terms. You don't have to necessarily negotiate anything with these angel investors or venture capital groups. So if it's your first time doing that, you can raise up to like $1 million. It takes $1,070,000 to be exact. And there's great platforms in this space for stuff like that. So like Energy Funders being one of those. But then there's also stuff that's not energy specific. You've got platforms like Seed Invest, WeFunder, and then like a, a bunch of other ones. 
So that's regulation crowdfunding. ICOs are obviously all the rage. There's the, there's a lot of other stuff going on with ICOs right now, but I'm sure a lot of people have heard about, you know, ICOs and cryptocurrency in general, you know, especially if you haven't heard about that, you've, I guarantee you've at least heard about Bitcoin. So if you're unfamiliar with ICOs, an ICO is initial coin offering. So similar to that of like an IPO. However, companies are issuing a cryptocurrency type token or coin rather than actual stocks. Uh, and these get listed on crypto exchanges where they're traded. And the only prerequisite is that the projects raising money are utilizing blockchain technology, which we've talked about a thousand times. Um, but that's a whole other topic. But like anything new, ICOs are going through a lot of growing pains. They've been played with tons of scams and, and cash grabs. But there have also been a lot of legitimate companies and projects that have gone the ICO route. Kodak being one of them, Overstock.com. You know, These are companies that have been around forever that decided to raise additional funds via the ICO route. But the SEC has started cracking down on U.S.-based ICOs, stating that each ICO is technically a security and should abide by securities laws and provide those protections to investors. So now in the ICO landscape, it's in a bit of a transition in order to comply with the SEC. You know, there's new theories about what ICOs will look like in the future, but none have actually been attempted. So some of those are called private ICOs, some are called security token offerings. There's a lot of platforms being built to facilitate that. But like I said, we're still in like the first inning of that and no one's actually attempted it yet. But I say that to say that ICOs aren't going away and this model of fundraising for new startups is really here to stay. So for example, I have some quick stats here. So for 2017, there was 502 ICOs that raised $6.8 billion total, the average being $13 million per ICO. And every major venture capital firm in Silicon Valley has now invested in at least one ICO. So that shows you kind of where the industry is going. So I say that to say that my advice to venture capitalists, especially in the oil and gas space, would be to understand that you don't have the leverage that you once had. And that if you want to survive, you need to adapt with the times you're going to kind of get left behind. And one of the things I like to say when you meet VCs is, you know, is your firm and every other firm out there has money, but what other value do you bring to the table and why would you be a valuable part of my team? And VCs need to be able to convey a clear value proposition other than just cash or also be kind of stuck in, you know, what I would consider a commodity play. So that was a very long winded answer. And I hope that somewhat summed it up for you. Yeah. So what's interesting, Jake, is I had this conversation uh, with a president of a tech company. So not, not an oil and gas company at all, a tech company. And he was talking to me about all the cash that he sees on the sidelines in the tech industry. And I'm going, that's funny because I see the same thing in oil and gas. There's cash everywhere. All these VCs are looking for that deal, the best deal, the good deal. But this ICO thing is new and it's a bit of a disruptor. There's a big LNG plant being built on Monkey Island in Louisiana, Cameron. Now, this is an LNG facility, right? They're going to convert natural gas to liquefied natural gas and sell it to the rest of the world. They're funding it with an ICO. That tells you right there, <laughs> right there, that this is legit. And honestly, Jake, I, I don't know that VC world very well. The end of last year, I had reach, reached out to a couple of VC firms uh, looking to see if they were interested in one of our podcasts that are coming out this year. And I was a bit disappointed in how easy it was to engage in conversations with them because I couldn't engage with them. They literally, if you don't have a deal or the way I felt about it, it's like, if I don't have a deal, they don't want to talk to me. And for any company, you can't just be focused on what makes you a dollar yesterday. You need to be looking at the future. And if things are changing, you need to understand it. So that's exactly what, you know, what Jake went through when he went into detail and all this stuff, which by the way, Jake is the expert on this, not me, but I do, I do see that world changing. I think it's good. I think it's good for everybody. Yep. You gotta go, you gotta go along with the times. So those uh, methods of raising funds are, are here to stay. But anyways, that wraps up the questions. We're not announcing the winner anymore. 
So, <laughs> but if you want to win your own Red Wing offshore bag, it's pretty awesome. You could fit at least one and a half bodies in it. Um, <laughs> just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. No purchase necessary. See uh, official site for rules and details. And yep. what's the wig count doing? The wig count or the rig count? Rig count. <laughs> it is not loading. Oh, there it is. Up 2%. We're at 1,056 rigs. That's good. Nice, healthy number. Yep. And speaking of healthy number, Jake, we're actually doing something, aren't we, in person that we've been talking about for years. <laughs> we're actually doing our first oil and gas happy hour. What's going on with that? Yeah, so we're doing a, uh, it's going to be an oil and gas happy hour uh, hosted by us. And we work the date that we have on the books right now is March 29th, but it could possibly change to March 27th. The time won't change. It'll still be from 6 to 8 p.m. And we'll start letting people in around 5.30, you know, with, with traffic and parking and whatnot. Beer is going to be provided. There's going to be a lot of people. We already have a ton of RSVPs. I'm expecting at least probably 100 people, if not more. We're definitely going to probably cap it at probably at least 120 to 130 people if we have that many RSVPs. But it's going to be a good time. You know, we have a very diverse crowd going to be there. A lot of people that we know, a lot of people that I don't know. Yeah. And if you listen to podcasts, we'd love to meet you. Come out. It's here in Houston. If you're in the Houston area, there's a link that will be in the show notes. You can just go sign up to RSVP and get your spot before it disappears because it will fill up. But come out. We would love to actually meet you in person. Um, this is the first of, of many more live events that OGGN will be doing. So come out. Come see us. And if you want to learn about other events, you know, you hear me talk about this all the time. I have our monthly newsletter. It's really simple. Sign up for it. We take all the oil and gas events, put them in one place, stick it in your inbox once a month for free. And sometimes we give away stuff like free passes or we give you insights to stuff the public doesn't know about. So go sign up for it. If you like the first Friday Q&A and you have questions that you want Jake and I to answer, maybe leave the workout stuff out. But that was kind of funny. <laughs> Go to oilandgasthisweek.com, click on Ask a Question, submit your question. And if we use your question on the microphone, we will give you a big shout out. While you're there, give us your email address. That's where we're going to notify people first of stuff that Jake and I are doing. If you want to learn second, go to Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn group. Uh, sign up there anyway, because that's where that's kind of the companion to this show and all the rest of the shows. Uh, and that's about it, huh, Jake? You ready to get out of here? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.